Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Globe Gazette. It's entitled, Boys to Men Mentoring Builds Meaningful Connections. It's written by Robin McClelland. Screen time, video games, pop music, a decline in public schools. Each of these has been blamed for behavioral issues in young people. Eric... Gan Yang and Peterson John Pierre are two local men who see that kids deal with much more than surface issues such as these. They see a lack of deep connections between generations and among peers. So, the pair have started the Boys to Men mentoring program for boys ages 11 to 15 in Mason City. According to their mission statement, they plan to nurture young men by fostering character development and promoting personal excellence through the practice of stoicism and engaging in Socratic dialogue. Adolescent development occurs in stages, and according to Scholastic.com, during early stages, young teens begin to experience adolescent egocentrism. There are two major components of adolescent egocentrism. One is the concept of the imaginary audience, and the other is the personal fable. Parents and loved ones of children this age will recognize the imaginary audience as the worry a child has that everyone is directing their attention toward them. Preteens and teens feel like others are carefully watching their appearance and behaviors. Similarly, the personal fable is the feeling that others, namely adults, have not had similar experiences to what the child is going through. Mentoring is an opportunity for an adult to give support to a young person. This could be academic, social, or emotional support, and often encompasses all three. Gan Yang is keenly aware that young people today receive a host of messages through social media. While some of the content can be beneficial, it doesn't take much to be distracted by a charismatic content creator with a detrimental point of view. One thing we want young people to understand is the difference between a comment and a disrespect, said Gan Ying. Kids see disrespect before they see the issue may not be about them. We want to encourage thoughtfulness among these young men so they can drive positive changes. Jean-Pierre agrees. One thing we want to do is model that behavior for them, he said. We asked ourselves what kind of men we want to see in our community and how we can help them grow. Gan Yang and Jean-Pierre both live in Mason City and both recently got engaged to their partners. Jean-Pierre is the father of three with a 12-year-old son, six-year-old daughter, and a one-year-old son. Gan Yang's eldest is 19 years old, daughter, along with an 11-year-old stepson. Boys to Men plans to take up to 10 male youths in its inaugural group with a focus on children from single-parent female-led homes. So far, six boys have signed up. We want to teach the children that they don't know what they don't know, said Ganyang. We want to teach conflict resolution and emotional regulation, teach them about the consequences to their actions. Jean-Pierre said the men took a roundabout approach before landing on mentoring. We were looking at the needs in the community. We see literacy and school attendance as major issues, but there's so much more to it. Mentoring is a way to wrap it all together, he explained. The monthly mentoring meetings will be held group style. Gang Yang has 
procured a meeting room through his position as an accountant with Comprehensive Systems Incorporated, a community-based direct support agency for those with special needs. Boys to Men Mentoring is still accepting youths who are interested in participating. The program does not deal with juvenile delinquency at this point, and young people must have a personal interest in engaging in the program to be accepted. The first group meeting will be held at 11 a.m. on February the 3rd. To join the program, email petersonjp11 at gmail.com or engaus at yahoo.com or visit the Boys to Men Facebook page. Next, Iowa Works hosts weekly hiring events. This is also written by Robin McClellan. The Iowa Works Mason City office at 600 South Pierce Avenue hosts weekly hiring events Tuesdays in the Job Center to connect job-ready candidates with area employers who are hiring. Employers from the area participate and all interested applicants are encouraged to attend. There's never been a greater time to re-enter the workforce and these weekly hiring events will help showcase the wide variety of positions available in our area, said Sarah Cook business engagement consultant for Iowa Workforce Development within the Iowa Works Mason City Center. Our weekly hiring events are often the first step to re-employment or even new careers in high-demand fields. Iowa Works stands ready to help any job seeker find the connection they need to get started. Tuesday's event features from 11 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Michael Foods. For more information, contact Iowa Works at 641-422-15. And Clear Lake Area Chamber celebrates 2023 successes, recognizes annual award winners. Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce recognized local business and community leaders at its 81st annual meeting and awards celebration Friday, January the 26th. More than 200 people, representing more than 50 member businesses and organizations, attended the evening event that featured a happy hour and hors d'oeuvres awards presentation, and live entertainment by Piano Palooza, a dueling piano show, according to a press release. The 2023 award recipients are as follows. C.L. Tell, Business of the Year. The award recognizes a standout chamber business that has exemplified outstanding service and contribution to our community. 173 Degrees Craft Distillery, Entrepreneur of the Year. This new award celebrates an individual or business with an innovative and visionary entrepreneurial spirit. Bash at the Lake Spirit of North Iowa Award, formerly called the North Iowa Service Award, recognizes an individual or group committed to enhancing the quality of life in North Iowa without regard for personal gain. Everybody Plays Inclusive Playground Committee, Larry Luker, Volunteer of the Year, The Larry Luker Volunteer of the Year Award was created to recognize an individual or group whose volunteer efforts have made a significant impact on the North Iowa area. Christy Miles, First Mate of the Year. The First Mate of the Year is an individual who demonstrates significant contributions to the Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce during the preceding year, both in attendance and engagement. In addition to the award's presentation, The chamber named three new chamber board members, recognized outgoing board members, and announced its 2024 board officers. Those new to the board are Chris Fisher, Athletico Physical Therapy, Cadence, or Candence, Karstjens, NIACC John Papajan Entrepreneurial Center, 
and Brad Peterson 173 degree craft distillery. The chamber board and officers for 2024 were introduced. Sarah Nielsen, First Citizens Bank and 2024 chair. Kent Tho, MBT Bank and past chair. Mark Dodd, One Vision and chair-elect. Josh Thompson, Clear Lake Bank and Trust and treasurer. Robert Barber, Cabin Coffee Company and vice chair of tourism and marketing. Amanda Caston, Kingland and vice chair of membership. Kent Beatty, CL Tell, Aaron Donaldson, Lake Theater, Denny Sue Erickson, Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, Liz Lefevre, First Gabrielson Agency, Christy Miles, Pritchard Family Auto Stores, Austin Pell, Atura Architecture, Carrie Shannon, Hall Realty, and Crystal Tho, Oak Care Center, Oakwood, excuse me, Oakwood Care Center. Michael Knorr of Accord Architecture and Carrie Thysdell of American Solutions for Business retired from the board. The mission of the Clear Lake Area Chamber is to be the champion for business success and quality of life, creating a thriving destination and driving community prosperity. Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce has 475 members. Our next article is entitled Drew De Gabriel, named February Noon Rotary Student of the Month. Drew De Gabriel was chosen as the Noon Rotary Club's Student of the Month for February. He is the son of Brian and Sethany De Gabriel. Current activities. During all four years at Mason City High School, I have played golf, basketball, and soccer. In addition to academic all-conference honors in all three sports, I have excelled in golf, earning four varsity letters, two years of first-team all-conference honors, and one year of academic all-state honors. Academically, I belong to the National Honor Society at Mason City High School and the North Iowa Area Community College chapter of the Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society. I have also participated in Model UN for two years and mock trial for one year. Last year, I graduated from the Mason City Chamber of Commerce Youth Investing Energy and Leadership Development Program. During my experience in the YIELD program, I worked with other students to create sled sheds at a couple of local parks to house sleds for community use during the winter months. I have also participated in the Silver Cord Volunteer Program for four years. Recently, I volunteered to become certified as a basketball referee to help address the referee shortage. During this process, I volunteered as a referee for a local youth basketball league, and I am now beginning to also work regional youth basketball tournaments as well. Next year, I will attend NIACC and play golf. I intend to major in mathematics or statistics. After graduating from NIAC, I plan to transfer to a four-year university and earn a bachelor's degree and graduate degree before I pursue a career in either sports statistics or mathematics education and coaching. Now we come to an article entitled, Woman Arrested After Allegedly Damaging Rental Property. This is written by Lisa Gruet. A woman was arrested in Boone County on Sunday on a Cerro Gordo County warrant. Authorities took 40-year-old Jessica Jo Peterson, whose current address is not listed in the police report, into custody after she allegedly destroyed the interior of a rental home she previously occupied. According to court documents, in October 2023, Peterson had been leasing a Mason City home on North Federal Avenue owned by Hardy Rentals. 
Facing eviction from the residence, Peterson is said to have damaged the home's plumbing, HVAC, and electrical systems, along with doors, doorways, and cabinets, totaling $10,000 in damages. Peterson made her initial court appearance on Monday. A trial date has not yet been set. She is being held in the Cerro Gordo County Jail on $5,000 cash or surety bond. And county officials urge caution on gravel roads during midwinter thaws. This is written by Robin McClelland. Cerro Gordo County officials are urging rural road users to stay off gravel roads if possible while hauling high weight or high volume loads. In a Monday press release, the Cerro Gordo County Engineering Department informed residents that melting snow, rain, and warmer temperatures are causing partial thawing of gravel roads. The top portion of the gravel roadways will be saturated and weakened. Heavy trucks carrying feed, seed, livestock, manure, and more can cause severe damage, and officials are asking people to only use gravel roads in the mornings while they are still frozen whenever possible. Altered routes or load adjustments are requested until roads can fully freeze again. There is no way for the county to correctly fix or strengthen roadways at this time of year, and officials are asking that all the users help the county maintain the integrity of the gravel road system through moderation of use. Our next article is entitled, 51st Ragbri to Take a Southerly Route This Summer. It will be by far the hilliest ragbri. Written by Peggy Senzarino of the, the Sioux City Journal. The route for the 2024 version of the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa will take a southerly route this summer. According to an announcement Saturday night at the Iowa Event Center, the 51st annual ride will begin in Glenwood on Keg Creek, a Missouri River tributary, and end in Burlington on the Mississippi River. Saturday's Ragbri route reveal, also named the overnight stops, which will include Red Oak, Atlantic, Winterset, Knoxville, Ottumwa, and Mount Pleasant. It's a small town heavy route with only Ottumwa and Burlington having more than 10,000 residents. Ragbri 2024 will take place from Sunday, July 21st through Saturday, July 27th. The route crossing Iowa will total 424 miles, one of the shortest ever. Last year's route started in Sioux City and ended in Davenport. The crowd peaked on the fourth day of the ride last year between Ames and Des Moines with an estimated 60,000 people. Organizers are expecting attendance this year to roughly equal or slightly surpass that of 2022. On the first leg of that year's ride, an estimated 30,000 riders, including unregistered ones, made the journey from Sergeant Bluff to Ida Grove. This year's route will have 18,737 feet of climb, quite a bit more than last year's 16,549 feet of climb. It will only be by far, it will be by far the hilliest ragby on record. There's going to be a lot of hills. I can't stress that enough, ragby ride director Matt Fippen said in a statement. If you ride your bicycle and train, you're going to be in a good spot. The route and roads the ride will travel are still being finalized. In state news, Davenport has significance in The Day the Music Died. This is written by Gannon Hennevold of the Quad City Times. The Day the Music Died has been immortalized in music history. It earned its title in Don McLean's karaoke sing-along classic American Pie and is one of the most significant tragedies to hit American pop culture. 
The story goes like this. After a series of bus malfunctions on their winter dance party tour made travel across the Midwest near impossible, Buddy Holly, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Richie Valens chartered a flight from Mason City, Iowa to Moorhead, Minnesota on February the 3rd, 1959. Their plane crashed in a field in Clear Lake not long after takeoff, killing all three musicians and pilot Roger Peterson. Buddy Holly was age 22, Valens was 17, and Richardson was 28. Just like that, three of the youngest, most popular faces of rock and roll were gone. And yet, that night, their show played on in Moorhead with tears in guitarist Waylon Jennings' eyes. The Winter Dance Party continued for 13 more appearances across the region, including four more in Iowa. On January 29, 1959, just a week before the fatal crash, Buddy Holly and the crew were right here in Davenport for a pair of performances. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and Dion and the Belmonts were all on the bill for the show at the Capitol Theater. It was a cold night in Quad City and Terry Poffingbarger remembers. Then 15 years old, it was Poffingbarger's first show. He remembers saving up for a ticket which sold for $1.50 at his 50 cents an hour job at a local grocery store. That was almost half a day's work, he said. Poffenbarger's dad dropped Terry and his neighborhood friends off outside a long while before the show started at 7 p.m. I wanted to be early because I wanted to sit in the front row, he said. And that's exactly what happened. Poffenbarger was eager to be the front and center to see the Big Bopper. He was such a fan that he wore a leopard skin vest made from his mother's old coat that looked just like the Bopper's signature garb. While his memory of the show is pretty fuzzy, Poffenbarger said he'll remember one moment forever. When the Big Bopper came out for his song, he looked down and I'm in the front row in the leopard skin vest and he looked, he said, pausing for emphasis, and he pointed at me. The tour stopped in Fort Dodge, Duluth, Green Bay, and Clear Lake after Davenport and before the crash, making it one of the Rockers' five final shows. In terms of world history, the Capitol Theater stop took place just weeks after Alaska became an official state and weeks before Barbie debuted on shelves. Later that year, celebrities like Magic Johnson, Simon Cowell, Allison Janney, and Brian Adams were born. It's likely that their set list featured hits like Peggy Sue, That'll Be the Day, and It Doesn't Matter Anymore, which were featured in other winter dance party shows. The show at the Capitol Theater wasn't much of a dance party, though. The Davenport Stop was the only concert of the Winter Dance Party Tour held in a theater as opposed to a dance hall, according to Canadian filmmaker and Buddy Holly historian Seven Garabedin. They even had to alter promotional material to avoid the word dance being used. Garbadian was born, was has been researching the Winter Dance Party Tour since before the internet, but the Davenport stop is also the only date on tour which he had found zero pictures of the show. Before and after the crash, there were 24 Winter Dance Party concerts. All of them have photos except for this one. I keep trying, Garbadian said, requesting that if anyone finds a photo of the show, they email it to him at 71 at simpatica, simpatico.ca. Let me spell that out. S-E-V-A-N and the number one at simpatico, S-Y-M-P-A-T-I-C-O 
www.ca. They're out there in someone's attic collecting dust, and people must not think it's worth it, but visual representation of that night matters. News of the plane crash in Clear Lake hit the first page of the Daily Times on February the 3rd, 1959. It devastated rock and roll fans, including Poffenbarger. We just saw them, he said. We couldn't believe anything about it. Garay Biedinen said the day the music died marked the end of an era, one of innocence, and it ushered in a rock and roll dry spell before the British invasion of the early 60s. Every year in Clear Lake, on the anniversary of the famous plane crash, the Surf Ballroom hosts the Winter Dance Party, a celebration of each musician's legacy. Many diehard Buddy Holly fans make the trek to the field where the crash took place. This year's festival runs from Thursday, February 1st to Saturday, February 3rd. Near the crash site, a memorial statue of Buddy Holly's famous glasses stands overlooking the field. Today's opinion page features another view from the Las Vegas Review Journal entitled, Many Voters Don't Want This Rematch. No labels could complicate matters for the unpopular Biden and might just hurt Trump. Polls reveal that a majority of American voters aren't happy about a potential rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the 2024 presidential election, yet that's what the country seems poised to endure. Trump easily won the New Hampshire Republican primary, collecting 54% of the vote to beat his last GOP significant challenger, Nikki Haley, by 11 percentage points. With South Carolina, her home state, on the Republican primary calendar for February 24th, Haley insists she will stay the course. But she trails Trump by 40 points on her home turf, according to ABC News, and a loss there would effectively end her campaign. Haley's decision to hang on, not surprisingly, the subject of much vitriol and bombast from Trump, may reflect a pragmatism stemming from the former president's legal hurdles. Perhaps she's positioning herself as her party's alternative should Trump be unable to make it to November as a result of one or more dalliances with the judicial system. Absent that unlikely end, New Hampshire results move the nation further toward another Biden-Trump campaign. A survey released by The Hill in conjunction with the decision desk HQ found that 59% of those queried were either not too enthusiastic or not at all enthusiastic about that prospect. Such high rates of dissatisfaction with what the two major political parties are offering opens the door for a formidable third party hopeful. Most notably, representatives of No Labels, which describes itself as a national movement of common-sense Americans pushing our leaders together to solve our country's biggest problems, have suggested they will field a unity candidate for the White House if the only alternatives are Biden and Trump. The group has earned ballot access in 13 states, including Nevada. Democrats are terrified that No Labels, which includes a handful of prominent former Democrats and Republicans, could complicate matters for the unpopular and foundering Biden. This has led to the spectacle of progressives tarring Trump as a threat to democracy while they work feverishly to discredit what could be a viable third alternative for many voters. One might conclude their devotion to democracy has its limits. It's also pure conjecture to predict at this point where no labels might draw support. Trump has his own polling problems as he continues to play to his ardent base rather than work to attract moderates and independents into his coalition. 
The race may look very different in a few months, given Trump's legal issues, the ups and downs of the economy, and the evolving outlook of voters. A Trump-Biden rematch appears inevitable, but enough minefields are ahead for both candidates to keep it interesting. Now we turn to today's obituaries, and first we remember David G. Paulus, age 75, of Floyd, who passed away on Thursday, January the 25th, at the Floyd County Medical Center in Charles City due to a ruptured aortic aneurysm. A celebration of life service will be held at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, at the Gospel Lighthouse Church, 201 Madison Street in Floyd, Iowa, with Pastor Paul Phillips officiating. Following the service, burial will take place at the Oakwood Cemetery in Floyd. A luncheon will follow the graveside service at the church. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January the 30th, at Hauser Weishar Funeral Home in Charles City, and continue one hour prior to the service on Wednesday at the church. Hauser Weishar, Weishar Funeral Home, 641-228-2323. 1205 South Main Street in Charles City, Iowa, is in charge of local arrangements. Online condolences may be left on the tribute wall for the family at www.hauserfhfh.com. Next, we remember David V. Lees. On the morning of December 14, 2023, David Dave V. Lees of Claremore, Oklahoma, passed away. Dave and his family moved to Mason City, Iowa in 1972, and he opened the second of five muffler clinics in northern Iowa and southern Minnesota. In 1977, Dave started the Briarstone Housing and Retail Development Project that included Perkins, Taco Tico, and other retail establishments. Dave moved to Longmont, Colorado in 1998, started another land development project, divorced, and relocated to Missouri. There, he married his second wife, Lisa Haas, in 2001, and started another development project near Camdenton and Lake of the Ozarks. After settling in Claremont, Oklahoma in 2008, Dave ended his last development project in the summer of 2023. Per Dave's witches, his body was cremated. There will be a private, cere- private memorial ceremony. Next, we remember Bernice M. Dirk age 104, of Rockwell, who died Sunday, January the 28th, 2024, Mass at 11 a.m., Church, or excuse me, Thursday, February 1st, 2024, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church, 305 Elm Street, E, Rockwell, Iowa, Interment, Sacred Heart Cemetery, Rockwell, Hogan, Bremer, Moore, Colonial Chapel, area code 641 now we remember Delbert D. Witt, who died Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center in Mason City at the age of 86. A funeral service will be held 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, 2024, at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street Northeast, Mason City, with Pastor Scott Sokol officiating. Burial will follow in Memorial Park Cemetery in Mason City. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 1st at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel and will resume one hour prior to Delbert's service at the funeral home on Friday. Should friends desire, memorials may be left in Delbert's honor in care of his family. And we remember Glenn A. Theta, 
age 69, of Garner, who passed away January 27, 2024. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, January the 31st, at St. John's Lutheran Church, east of Garner. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January the 30th, at Cataldo Funeral Chapel, 160 East 4th Street, Garner, and will continue one hour prior to services at the church. Memorials may be directed to St. Croix Hospice, arrangements by Cataldo Funeral Home. For online condolences, visit www.cataldofuneralhome.com. Now it's time for a quick look at sports before we move on to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Here's what's on TV today. In college men's basketball at 5.30 p.m. on the SEC Network, it's South Carolina at Tennessee. At 6 p.m. on the ACC Network, it's Syracuse at Boston College. And on Big Ten Network, it's Iowa at Indiana. On CBS Sports Network, also at 6 p.m., VCU at St. Bonaventure. And ESPN has North Carolina at Georgia Tech. ESPNU has Texas Tech at TCU. FS1 has Marquette at Villanova. And Peacock has Illinois at Ohio State. 7.30 p.m. on SEC Network, Mississippi State at Mississippi. 8 p.m. on the ACC Network, it's Louisville at Clemson. CBS Sports Network has San Diego State at Colorado State. ESPN carries Oklahoma State at Kansas. ESPN2 has Miami at NC State. FS1 has Seton Hall at Dubuque, DePaul, excuse me, and Peacock has Michigan at Michigan State. 10 p.m. on ESPN, you can see Loyola Marymount take on Gonzaga. And on FS1, it's Fresno State at UNLV. In the NBA on TNT, 6.30 p.m., it's Indiana at Boston. And 9 p.m. on TNT, it's Philadelphia at Golden State. And in the National Hockey League at 7 p.m., on the National Hockey League Network, it's Columbus at St. Louis. I'll just give you some quick headlines from the sports page. River Hawks send seven. Uh, Mason City finishes second in home Super Regional. That's in girls wrestling. So seven uh, Mason City girl wrestlers are headed to the state tournament. In high school basketball, River Hawk boys win on the road. Uh, they defeated Marshalltown 57-56. to High school girls basketball, the Mason City girls extended their win streak to five with a 60-14 win over Marshalltown Friday night. And in boys high school wrestling, the Mason City boys completed, competed in the Iowa Alliance Conference meet on Saturday in Fort Dodge. Hale Rhodes won the conference title at 165 pounds, picking up three decision wins along the way. Reed Kruger finished second at 120 with a pair of major decisions. Alex Kenward finished in third in the heavyweight division, and Aiden Askelson was fifth at 190 pounds. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now it's time to move over to the Fort Dodge Messenger, and our first story is entitled Time of Transition, Becker Florists Getting New Owners, Business Name to Remain the Same. It's written by Bill Shea. 
The transition at a Fort Dodge floral shop that has been in business for 139 years won't be immediately obvious. The signs on the building will still declare it to be Becker Florists, but for the first time since the year 1885, it will not be owned by the Becker family. Current owners Brian, Bruce, Jeff, and Linda Becker have announced the sale of the business to Kyle and Destiny Johnson and Cole and Bree Johnson, who own Johnson Brothers Snow and Moe in Fort Dodge. We were all ready to retire, Jeff Becker said Monday afternoon. Time to move on, Bruce Becker added. The new owners take over Wednesday. The biggest goal is to just get a good first year under our belt, Kyle Johnson said Monday evening. We're going to make some changes, but I think there are changes that will help everyone, he added. The Johnsons are buying the store and the greenhouse at 1335 1st Avenue North. The Christmas tree farm north of Fort Dodge is not included in the sale. Kyle Johnson said the business will still be called Becker Florists and the current 15 employees will be retained. He added that he and his brother and their wives have been at the store often recently. We've been in and out of there for a good month now, he said. The Beckers and the Johnsons had been talking about the purchase for about six weeks. They're Fort Dodge people and they're young, energetic, Jeff Becker said. He added that since there are no younger generations of the Becker family interested in taking over the business, selling it to local people is the next best thing. Brian, Bruce, Jeff, and Linda Becker are the fourth generation of the family to own the business, which started in 1885 by Christopher Becker. Bill and Minnie Becker were the second-generation owners, but Bill died at age 30, leaving his wife to run the business and raise their two sons. Those sons, Bill and Ed Becker, were the third generation of owners. Brian Becker said the gener his generation of owners has been involved in the business since they were old enough to pick up brooms. They learned a lot of the work by doing it, he said. There is no typical day on the job at the floral shop and greenhouse, he added. Every day is a new chapter, he said, and when he or any of the Beckers talk about every day at work, they really mean every day. The plants don't take the weekend off, Jeff Becker said. In the floral business, there are definitely some times that are busier than others. Valentine's Day is one of those times. The Beckers use the word crazy to describe the activity on that day when there are 12 to 15 people out delivering flowers and another 10 to 12 back at the shop making floral arrangements. Mother's Day is another big holiday for flowers, but the pace isn't as frantic. The orders and deliveries are spread out over an entire week. During the Christmas season, the Becker team is busy with trees, fresh-made wreaths, poinsettias, and candle centerpieces. The crew at Becker Florists deliver flowers to funeral homes in Fort Dodge every day and to funeral homes within a 25-mile radius of the city on a regular basis. The Beckers have seen some changes in floral arrangements over the years, Brian Becker remembers Gates of Heaven, which were a very large floral arrangements in the shape of a gate that would be delivered to funeral homes on occasion. Bruce Becker remembers money tree arrangements that had currency tied to them. Then there were the men's bouquets of the 70s and 80s that included a basic flower arrangement, a can of beer, and a Playboy magazine. According to Jeff Becker, florists work with people during some of the happiest times of their lives, such as weddings, and sad times, such as funerals. You have all the emotions, he said. You work with them and try to do your best for them. What is the most rewarding part of the job? Sending people away with a smile on their face, Bruce Becker said. Next is an article entitled, Sheriff is American Legion of Iowa's Officer of the Year. 
Fleener has served Webster County for Sheriff for three years. It's written by Kelby Wingert. Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener was named the American Legion of Iowa's 2024 Law Enforcement Officer of the Year last week. Fleener was nominated for the statewide honor by Marvin Carr, commander of American Legion Post 130 in Fort Dodge. The American Legion of Iowa's National Affairs Committee reviewed nominations from across Iowa and ultimately chose Fleener. I am honored and humbled to have been nominated, let alone selected for this recognition, Fleener said. In my three short years as sheriff, our department has come a long way with so many improvements that all equal serving the citizens of Webster County the best way we know how. I would not be in this position to receive this recognition if it was not for the great staff we have at the Webster County Sheriff's Office. American Legion posts look for law enforcement officers who have gone above and beyond their communities, for their communities, Carr said. We want to show the American people that law enforcement does great stuff, Carr said. This is how we want to give back and to recognize these men and women. Fleener's nomination will now be forwarded for consideration by the American Legion National Headquarters for the National Law Enforcement Officer of the Year Award. The final story from the front page of the Messenger today is entitled Summit Adds 12 Ethanol Plants to Iowa Pipeline Proposal. Deal affects seven new counties and would include Gowrie and Emmitsburg plants. It's written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Summit Carbon Solutions has reached an agreement to nearly double the number of ethanol facilities that will connect to its proposed carbon dioxide pipeline system in Iowa, the company announced Monday. The agreement with POET, which says it is the world's largest biofuel producer, would add 17 ethanol plants to the proposed system in Iowa and South Dakota. A dozen of those are in Iowa, which gives Summit a total of 25 in the state. Those sites would extend Summit's footprint into at least seven new counties in Iowa, but the precise routes of those extensions are not yet clear. The company could not immediately provide an estimate of how many additional miles of pipe will be required. The new locations are near Arthur, Ashton, Coon Rapids, Corning, Emmitsburg, Fairbank, Gowrie, Hanlontown, Iowa Falls, Jewel, Menlo, and Shell Rock. Today marks a historic day for American agriculture and biofuels. Bruce Rastetter, a co-founder of Summit, said in a prepared statement, Poet is the largest bioethanol producer in the world, and their partnership with Summit Carpet Solutions ensures that decarbonizing bioethanol will lead to exciting new market opportunities for producers, rural economies, and American energy security. Summit's first hazardous liquid pipeline permit request, which has reached the final stage of the Iowa Utilities Board's regulatory process, includes about 690 miles of pipe and 12 ethanol producers. Summit filed for a second permit for a 31-mile extension to another ethanol plant last year. The latest announcement is a direct result of Navigator CO2's abandonment of a similar pipeline proposal about three months ago. Poet had an agreement with Navigator to connect to its system. It was an inevitability, Sabrina Zanur, a spokesperson for Summit, said of the new agreement with Poet. We are the only carbon capture and sequestration pipeline in this project footprint. And in order for these plants to remain viable, they need to have carbon capture and sequestration. 
Summit's system would connect to ethanol plants in five states and transport their captured carbon dioxide to North Dakota for underground storage. The ethanol plants would then produce fuel that is classified as low carbon, enabling the producers to sell into new markets and to be eligible for generous federal tax credits. Jeff Brown, the chief executive of POET, said connecting to the system ensures that ag-based biofuels will remain competitive for decades to come. A POET spokesperson declined to say why the company initially elected to partner with Navigator rather than Summit. The company's agreements with ethanol producers differed. Navigator would have charged them to transport their carbon dioxide based on how much it was transporting, whereas Summit has preferred profit-sharing agreements. Navigator's plans fizzled amid regulatory setbacks and potential changes to state rules. South Dakota denied its request for a permit, and Illinois regulators have been skeptical about whether the projects are appropriate if they do not connect to coal plants as state lawmakers had intended. Illinois was an important state for Navigator's project because it, because it was the destination of the carbon dioxide. That state is not included in Summit's proposal. But Summit's initial applications for permit in North and South Dakota were also denied. North Dakota is in the process of reconsidering Summit's application with a revised route, and the company has said it will reapply in South Dakota. The new application will include the five additional POET facilities in South Dakota, which are located near Big Stone, Chancellor, Groton, Hudson, and Mitchell. Zanor did not know when that application might be filed. The Iowa Utilities Board is now considering whether to grant Summit a permit and what conditions it might have. The board has not indicated when it will issue its decision. New legislation that is scheduled to be considered by an Iowa House subcommittee on Wednesday would allow lawmakers to pause governmental proceedings that include the potential for eminent domain. Summit seeks the use of eminent domain to obtain land easements for up to a quarter of its initial route in Iowa. The new bill would also allow landowners who are subjects of eminent domain requests to seek judicial review of the request before the Iowa Utility Board makes its final determinations. Another bill in the state Senate that has not been scheduled for discussion would have broad effects for carbon dioxide pipelines. They include a moratorium on permits for the projects until federal regulators finalize new safety rules for them, restrictions on eminent domain, counties could adopt route and safety requirements, and others. If Summit can change things in the middle of the game, so can we, said Kim Junker, whose farm in Butler County was in Navigator's path. We need legislative action now to stop this abuse of our constitutional property rights. It's unclear how many of the landowners who would have been affected by Navigator's project will now be affected by Summit's extensions to the additional ethanol plants. We'll turn to today's obituaries in the messenger. And first, we remember Rodney Black of Milford, formerly of Fort Dodge. Grades 5 services will be held Wednesday, January the 31st, 2024 at 11 a.m. at the North Lawn Cemetery Mausoleum. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that memorial contributions may be made to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in the name of Rodney Black. Arrangements are under the direction of Robinson Funeral Home in Spirit Lake. Online condolences may be sent to www 
www.spiritlakefuneralhome.com. And we remember Roger Collins of Livermore. Funeral services 11 a.m. Thursday at LifeGate Fellowship in Humboldt. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at Lentz Funeral Home in Livermore. www.lentzfuneralhome.com And we remember Paul Grace of Rockwell City. Funeral will be held Saturday, February 3rd, 2024 at 2 p.m. at the Martin Matisse Funeral Home in Emmitsburg, Iowa. And we remember Christian Allen of Clarion, who passed away on Friday, January the 26th. Ewing Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements, and you can find out more information at www.ewingfh.com. Now we remember Albert Habhab, the Honorable Albert L. Habhab, passed away on Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at the age of 98. Albert was the son of Lebanese immigrants and a lifelong resident of Fort Dodge. In 1944, he entered the Army as a private with the 87th Infantry Division, where he fought in World War II and was awarded the Bronze Star. Following the war, Albert entered the University of Iowa, where he met his future wife, Janet Morse. Albert established his law practice in 1952 and was a devoted public servant. He served as mayor of Fort Dodge from 1960 through 1974 and was proud of his contributions to the construction of the airport terminal and firehouse and the creation of Williams Drive and Veterans Memorial Bridge, which was renamed in his honor on Veterans Day in 2023 and is now known as the Albert L. Habhab Veterans Memorial Bridge. Albert also served on the board of Friendship Haven for many years. In 1975, Albert was appointed to serve as a district court judge for the 2nd Judicial District by Governor Robert Ray. In 1988, Albert was appointed to the Iowa Court of Appeals by Governor Terry Branstad, where he eventually became the chief judge and later served as a senior judge. Albert retired in 2003. Albert was held in high regard by his colleagues as hardworking, conscientious, and fair. A celebration of Albert's life will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February the 2nd, 2024, at the Tompkins Celebration Center at Friendship Haven. Interment services will follow with military honors presented by VFW Post 1856 and the Iowa Army National Guard. Visitation is 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Memorial contributions may be left to Friendship Haven. Now we remember Barbara Ann Casey Eastwood, age 88, who passed away peacefully on January the 28th, 2024, at her home in Dayton, Iowa. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February the 3rd, 2024, at Lossweiler Funeral Home, with visitation one hour prior. Burial will follow at North Lawn Cemetery in Fort Dodge. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. And Carrie Leeser age 67, visitation Thursday, February the 1st from 4 to 7 p.m. at Loftsweiler Funeral Home, www.loftsweilerfuneralhome.com. And Loftsweiler is spelled L-A-U-F-E-R-S-W-E-I-L-E-R. Now we jump over to the sports page, and our first article has to do with the Iowa Central men's basketball team, and it's entitled To the Limit. 
Tritons push 8th ranked Eagles, threatened by Dana Becker. Just two days removed from a 14-point loss at number 8 Kirkwood, the Iowa Central men pushed the Eagles to their limit here Monday night. Kirkwood, though, escaped Hodges Fieldhouse with a 75-70 victory. The Tritons, who trailed by as many as 16, cut it in, cut it to a one-possession game after a bucket by Davian Gaston, but Ayuba Berthy knocked down a pair of free throws to seal the deal. Jordan Fenderson made four three-pointers and finished with a game-high 22 to lead Iowa Central as Miles Fant added 17 and Deuce Black 14. Fant also had seven rebounds and Gaston chipped in eight and eight. We could have folded there down big in the second half, but these kids answered the call, ICCC head coach Chad Helley said. When you're trying to get going, a game like this can really help you. We knew what to expect from Kirkwood, having just played them on Saturday, and we had some troubles there in the first half. But we settled down, started playing team basketball, and made a run. For the Eagles, Berthy had 20, going 11 for 12 at the free throw line. He also recorded 8 rebounds and 5 assists. Colby Dolphin added 12 points, and take Kate Hoggenberry scored 9. Kirkwood built a 7-point halftime advantage and were plus 6 at the charity strike. Iowa Central hits the road on Wednesday when they play North Iowa area in Mason City. And in Iowa Central women's basketball, number four Kirkwood pulls away from Tritons. This is also written by Dana Becker. Two days after coming up short versus fourth-ranked Kirkwood on the road, Iowa Central women were unable to change the end result here Monday evening. The Eagles used a third-three point third quarter to claim a 92-73 victory inside Hodges Fieldhouse. All five Kirkwood starters scored in double figures at as Zakyla Evans had 16, Kylie Corbin added 15, Emily Dreckman and Jenna Tweet each scored at 14, and Demetria Pruitt chipped in 12. For the Tritons, Laney Pilcher had a game-high 19, and Caitlin Tendall added 13. We're really proud of how our team battled, Iowa Central head coach Sabah Dickerson said, Kirkwood has been a solid team in our region and they don't make a lot of errors. Our team kept pushing to make a run at them, and that's progress from our first matchup this season. In high school wrestling, regional duels next for Fort Dodge. The preparation is over. Now it's time to push for trophies. The fourth-ranked Fort Dodge wrestling team will host a regional duel for a state tournament bid on Tuesday night. Number 14 Carlisle will compete against... 22nd ranked Waukee at 6 p.m. The Dodgers will then wrestle the winner for one of eight spots in the state dual tournament next weekend in Coralville. Another high school basketball story, Gale Boys rally to top Eagle Grove. Hunter Horn's block of a potential game-tying three-pointer finished off a thrilling rally for the St. Edmund Boys here Monday night. The Gales overcome a double-digit lead to down Eagle Grove 55-52. Horn scored 19 points, 16 rebounds, 5 blocks, and 2 steals, while Sam Miracle added 17 points. For the Eagles, Jackson Morrison Morris knocked down 7 triples and had a game-high 25. We did a lot of the little things that added up to a big win, SEHS head coach Adolf Kuchendorfer said. We took all of those things that we have been working on and learning from throughout the season and used them to our advantage. 
We struggled with the zone, but we did enough to get the job done. And the Gale girls pull through for a home victory, 46-36. to 36. The St. Edmund girls needed an answer here Monday night, down by five to Eagle Grove. That answer came in the form of Chloe Palmer as the freshman spearheaded a 17-7 run that resulted in a 46-36 victory over the Gales. For the Gales, excuse me. Palmer had a game-high 16 points, scoring 11 of those during that game-changing spurt. It might not have been pretty, but a win is a win, St. Edmunds head coach C.J. Tracy said. I thought during that run we did a better job of attacking and getting into the paint. That started with Chloe. We were able to get the ball inside out and we limited our mistakes. We can get up more shots and not turn the ball over as much. Good things can happen. Continuing with high school basketball, Jayhawks pull away from Dodger girls. The Fort Dodge girls couldn't slow down Urbandale on Monday, dropping a 55-40 decision to the Jayhawks. We played pretty well, Dodger head coach Scott Messerly said. We worked very hard against a well-coached Urbandale team. They were big and physical. We played through being down and got to the line when we needed to. We just couldn't get the stops, but the girls played hard. A late 8-0 run in the final minute of the first quarter gave the Jayhawks a 9-point edge. They would never surrender. Fort Dodge was still within eight at halftime break and only trailed by nine with seven minutes to go, but Urbandale slowly pulled away. L.J. Mail had 18 points for Fort Dodge, with Mackenzie McGill McElrath adding 12. Brooklyn Palmer at, pulled down 12 rebounds, with Palmer and McElrath scoring six steals, or recording six steals each. Fort Dodge is back in action on Friday at home against Marshalltown. Varsity tip is set for 6.15 p.m. And Urbandale too much for Fort Dodge boys. The Urbandale boys stretched a 10-point halftime advantage to an 80-54 win over Fort Dodge on Monday. The Jayhawks outscored the Dodgers by 10 points in the third period, then delivered a 26-point knockout punch in the final frame. Senior Ty Adams paced Fort Dodge with 12 points. Junior Drake Warland and Carter Woodruff added 11, with classmate Cade Westerhoff contributing 10. The Dodgers made only one three-point basket on the evening. Urbandale veteran Grant Eaker, meanwhile, swished six triples on his own and tallied a game-high 24 points. The Jayhawks improved to seven wins and 11 losses on the season with the victory. The Dodgers returned to action on Friday at home against Marshalltown. Varsity's boys' tip is set for approximately 7.45 p.m. And here's your rundown of sports on TV today. In men's college basketball at 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Iowa at Indiana. Also 6 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, it's VCU at Bonaventure. 6 p.m. on ESPN, it's North Carolina at Georgia Tech. 6 p.m. on ESPN2, Texas Tech at TCU. FS1 has Marquette at Villanova at 6 p.m. CBS Sports Network has San Diego State at Colorado State at 8 p.m. Also at 8 p.m. on ESPN is Oklahoma State at Kansas. And on ESPN2 at 8 p.m. it's Miami of Florida at NC State. FS1 has Seton Hall at DePaul at 8 p.m. 10 p.m. on ESPN you can catch Loyola Marymount at Gonzaga. And on FS1 at 10 p.m. you can see Fresno State at UNLV. Professional basketball, 6.30 p.m. on TNT, it's Indiana at Boston. 9 p.m. on TNT, it's Philadelphia at Golden State. 
And in professional hockey on the NHL Network at 7 p.m., it's Columbus at St. Louis. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>